God speaks in his word in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, the bronze serpent. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord set fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, who he sees it, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Do you have like vivid like images of things that you remember seeing as a kid? that you couldn't really process, or, you know, things that kind of struck you. I, I remember seeing a, a certain image when I was a kid and just, just being scared of it because I didn't understand uh, what it was. In fact, the, the image, um, which it was used, this sounds crazy, I don't know how I remember this, but it, it affected me, but it was, it was a, a picture that was on the cover of a Bible, a Bible trivia book that my parents Owned. And that picture made me afraid of the Bible, in fact, kind of, of the Old Testament, because I knew it was, I knew enough to know it was uh, 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 from, from the Old Testament. And so it, it really kind of m- affected the way that I thought about the Bible for a lot of my childhood. So here's the way that I remember that image. Does anybody, ever rec- does anybody recognize this image? You've ever seen it before? Kind of? Okay. I, you know, part of it is, 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 is you know, if you guys are into art, you know, certain periods and certain times in history, you know, they kind of made things looking very intense and very, almost kind of scary. And so that doesn't help. But, but I remember as a kid thinking, why, why does Moses have horns? Why does, why does Moses have horns here? And then I saw this next one. And again, what... What? This is a famous sculpture by Michelangelo. This isn't just like a nobody sculpture. This is one of the most famous sculptures in the world. Uh, Michelangelo's uh, depiction of Moses. Why does he have horns? Um, So, I I, want to show you just a couple others because it's not a fluke. So, I don't know what else is about to come. Um, Here's, here's the, like, I was going to say L.A. Rams, but here's the Rams. They're not, uh, you know, that kind of Moses has horns. What else have we got? All different kinds uh, of, of horns coming off the head of, see, well, that's terrifying, right? What kid wants to see a picture of Moses? This one is the Viking-horned Moses. I think, you know, he would fit in Minnesota very well. But there's... <laughs> um, what is going, look at those, those are kind of creepy, those are like small, and anyway, those are intense, but 
where did we, where did, why does Moses, oh, that's terrifying. Look at that. <laughs> See, there's reason for me to be scared as a child. Why, why does Moses look like that? Um, scholars believe it all came from a terrible misunderstanding, a terrible misunderstanding. You see, in the fourth century, there was this brilliant, brilliant Christian named Jerome. And Jerome uh, was given the job of taking the Bible as it existed in, it was in Hebrew for the Old Testament and in Greek for the New Testament. And everybody now could only read Latin. And so they said, hey, we need a Bible in our language. Can you put a Bible into Latin? And Jerome said, I got this for you guys. And so he spends obviously tons and tons of time and uh, we have the first ever book, Bible that was in Latin. And it's an extraordinary thing. Um, it was a groundbreaking work. We call it the Latin Vulgate. So if you guys have done ever any studies, sometimes it'll say the Vulgate says that's the thing that we're talking about. It's the first Latin Bible. Um, it was uh, put together by uh, Jerome. But there, th- there were a couple of issues. Um, and and there were some words that we just will say Jerome wasn't 100% sure on. Um, and, and, and this was one of those instances. It happens as Moses gets the Ten Commandments and he starts coming down. It was from what we just read uh, in the prayer of Exodus chapter 34. He comes down the mountain, you know, with the scrolls in hand or with the tablets in hand, sorry. And, um, you know, if you remember that story, his face is radiant. Right? He has been in the presence of God, and it says that his, his face is, is radiant. Um, it, it was so bright right, that people couldn't stand to look at Moses, and they had to like, put a veil around him forever because nobody could stand to look at him. Um, in, in verse 29 of Exodus 34, the ESV says, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He didn't know that the skin of his face shone. So the, the verb there in Hebrew is a little bit confusing, um, and, and it, in, in other contexts, it can mean something had horns. It can mean that something had horns. And so Jerome, he translated it as, Moses did not know that his face was horned. Moses did not know that his face was horned. That's how it reads in the Latin, because that he, that's what he, he took it as from the Hebrew. I, I know you guys get tired of some of this language stuff, but, you know, he's taking it from these different languages. Um, and so for centuries, people who would read the Latin Vulgate would say, oh, Moses came down the mountain horned, meaning he had either ram horns like, you know, like we saw there, or Viking ho- something. He had something going on. Um, and that's why we have all this art depicting Moses that way. You know, a simple misunderstanding terrified me as a child. Made me think Moses was scary or God turned him into, I don't know what, but something scary. It, all because of a simple misunderstanding. And for this morning, our, we have a passage uh, that has another famous misunderstanding. One that is, has um, caused a lot of people to be afraid of God's disapproval. To fear that they will never be good enough to earn God's love, never be good enough to earn his forgiveness. And so my goal this morning, my hope, is that we can clear up this misunderstanding to see what God wants for us instead. So let's pray as we go to God's Word. Father, would you guide us? Would you teach us more about yourself as we learn who you are through your Word, how you have shared it with us? God, let it change what we think, 
how we act, how we live with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Philippians chapter 2. This morning we're going to read verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in labor or in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So if you've been with us the last several weeks, uh, you know that we are in the book of Philippians, one of, one of Paul's most famous and well-known books. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to his favorite church. He is in prison in, in Rome, and he knows that his friends in, in Philippi are going through persecution uh, because the, the gospel doesn't fit very well with the Roman practices of Philippi and with the Roman authorities who were there. They're, they're, they're getting harassed, they're getting beaten up, they're getting persecuted in all different kinds of ways. Paul has shared with them that because of the gospel, uh, salvation is secure in Jesus and they don't have to fear death or persecution. Um, and he says everything that, that, you, that you're going through is going to work out to help others know Christ, just like it is in, in, in my life. That's, that's happening. And, and so last week he introduced uh, this incredible hymn about Jesus. Um, we call it the hymn of Jesus uh, or the hymn of Christ. And it, it just shares who he is and, and, and gives us an insight into, into the nature of Jesus. And um, and, and the highlight of that, of that hymn is that Jesus, even though he was God, was willing um, to become man. He was willing uh, to come and serve his very own creation. He was willing to get beat up and persecuted and harassed and even killed by the very people that he made. And so he says, look, if, if Jesus is willing to die for his own creation, if he was willing to humble himself that much... If he can do that, then we should be inspired by his example. And we should love others selflessly too. If Jesus can do it, he has the right to ask it of us. And and so I remind you of all of that because our passage this morning starts with a therefore. And you've probably heard from uh, lots of pastors in the past. If you see a therefore, that's your first question is, what is it there for? What is the therefore, therefore? Meaning, it's pointing to something. It's pointing to a reason. What's before it? What's the reasoning? In this case, it is linking this wonderful uh, passage from last Sunday of of, of the glorious nature of Christ to what Paul is going to ask of his readers. He's going to go on. He's going to continue in asking uh, of that. And so, what that means is that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the victor- victorious king, as we saw him last week, that's the reason for what he's about to tell us. So, so look at Jesus 
And now, therefore, I want you to be like this. So if we were um, to look at the passage again quickly, we can, we can rephrase it and say, you know, be humble, make others more of a priority above yourself, because Jesus made us and our salvation a priority. So therefore, get to work is kind of what he said. Sermon could be over at this point. <laughs> Sermon could be over at this point. But I want us to just take a little bit more time and, and look closer at it since we're all here together. Because a lot of people have misunderstood that now get to work command and taken it to mean something that it doesn't. So I want you to look again at verse 12 there in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only, or sorry, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So I've, I've told you before that, that I, I taught several years at a, a, a Christian uh, high school, and it was a non-denominational Christian school. And so what that meant was uh, I had to stay in the vanilla, we all accept this to be, you know, there, n- none of the controversial pieces that make us different uh, stuff was really that important, just kind of stick to the basics, right? And so... Um, but I got to hear a lot of opinions from kids who came from very different Christian backgrounds. Uh, and, and so um, I'll just tell you that this verse 12 is the background of a lot of uh, different denominations kind of thinking on stuff. Uh, especially for groups who tend to emphasize, you know, kind of salvation by works, uh, you know, obedience over grace and mercy. This is kind of the go-to passage, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. You've not done enough. Keep working. You've got to work hard if you want to get saved. Right? That's the kind of stuff I would, I would hear from some of these kids. And, and I have to admit that on the surface, if you just read verse 12... One could take away that idea from it, right? You could read, work out your salvation with fear and trembling and think, okay, I need to make God happy with how hard I work so that he'll save me and I better be afraid about it, right? I better be scared to death that I don't do enough. That's, that's what I can take from that passage. But, but let me just give you a, a quick explanation um, that I think will help change your mind because I don't think... And most scholars don't think it, it, it means what, what some have, have taken it to mean. I think this is the misunderstanding. Uh, first, if you've got your Bible still open and, and keep it open, I want you to look at verse 28 of, of chapter 1. Where we, we've talked about it a few weeks ago. Um, verse 28 of chapter 1. So he's talking about striving in the gospel. He says, not, be, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, that might not sound really important, but let me just tell you that it is very important. Your salvation is from God, right? That's what he just says. Your salvation is from God. 
This is the same salvation that Paul is referring to in chapter 2. He hasn't changed his theology at, at all in the, in the last couple of verses. Um, there's a, a famous commentator named Gordon Fee, and he says this, The context makes it clear that this is not a soteriological text per se. Soteriological just means salvation. This is not a salvation text, okay? Uh, dealing with people getting saved or saved people persevering, but rather it is an ethical text dealing with how saved people live out their salvation in context of the believing community and of the world. Okay, so he's talking about the salvation that's from God that they've already gotten, and he's going to say, I want you to work out that salvation. Okay, so he's referring to it, but it turns into an ethical piece rather than a do this so that you can be saved, but a Hey, take that salvation and use it to go work it, work it out. Okay? That's what, that is what he just said. A- another clue that Paul is not talking about what a lot of people think he, he is, is that this is written in the plural. So now, it's hard to talk about some of this stuff in English because it works so very different. But the language to just say, that, you know, when you talk about direct objects and indirect objects, if you remember all that stuff, and prepositional phrases and... In Greek, they have to line up in, in person and in, you know, whether they're plural or not, right? And so the, the plural is what he's talking about. He's talking about salvation in the plural, which is weird if he was talking about your salvation, work it out like that. He's talking about a group's salvation. And so that's an interesting thing. He's, they don't match up with what you would think they would be if it was a person trying to earn their own salvation. So linguistically, you can't jump to that. And you have to kind of be able to read that language to understand uh, why that's not possible. Um, uh, So uh, commentator Fee again says, everything about the sentence and its context indicates that Paul, with this imperative, is not referring to the salvation of individual believers, but the salvation that God has wrought in making them a people of God for his name in Philippi. And so I'm going to kind of go past some of the more mundane kind of linguistic stuff. But just believe me when I say, if you study this passage with anybody who knows anything about it, if you do that for very long, you can't help but go away thinking. You, you cannot think, Paul is saying we have to earn our salvation. You just, just can't do it if you're being honest at all with what, with what is here. It just doesn't, it just does not make sense. Okay, this is not a passage that says you have to do enough works to achieve your salvation. It flunks that test. It can't, it can't mean that. And if that were not enough, that explanation were not enough, then I want you to just look at the next verse, which is verse 13. And so let's read verse 13 together. So remember, he just said, Go and do work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Huh? Is that confusing instructions or what? Hey, go do a whole bunch of good works for your salvation because God is working in you to do the good works. What? Does that sound anything like something you can earn or, or do? It, it's an odd combination, isn't it? Verse 12, work out your salvation. Verse 13, God is the one who works in you to will and to work. This is one of those places where we see uh, what 
other scholars have called the mysterious interplay between d- divine initiative and enabling on the one hand and human participation on the other. Uh, Dennis Johnson writes, the best way to summarize all of this is that Paul is saying God is on the side of his people and that he not only has their concern at heart, but actively works in their behalf for the sake of his own good pleasure. So, how do you summarize all of that? It's both, right? We're supposed to be doing good stuff, but the reason we're supposed to be doing good stuff is because God has given us salvation, and he's going to work in us to want to do good stuff too. None of, none of the good stuff originates from us. It all comes from God. And so he, and Paul is saying, you guys, look at what Jesus did. He's given all of this to you. Now go live it out in a way that the world can see it. Okay, that's, that's the best summary that we can come up with. The Holy Spirit is empowering us to act. The Holy Spirit is empowering us to act. And so it's, it's this interesting combination because we're not robots in the sense that um, we're not just machines that God is, is just forcing to do things without any, any, any input in the matter. But we are dependent on the Holy Spirit who is, who is going to want to do good things through us. So on our own, we wouldn't do any good things. The Holy Spirit has to empower us. And so this is why hopefully you don't hear from me very often say something like, just be better, just do more. I hope you haven't heard a sermon from me yet like that, where I just said, just be a better person. You see those bumper stickers everywhere, right? Just be a good person. It doesn't work that way. Just, you don't have the power or the ability to will yourself to be a good person. So I'm not going to preach to you that way because I don't think it would work. To just go be better isn't, isn't a very good solution to things. Do more. Work harder. Be a better Christian. Those, those aren't, it's, I, I can make good sermons that way, but they don't impact you very much. They don't do much. We have to recognize that anything good is from Him, not our own goodness. We don't have goodness in us to do it. So what's the solution? We let the Holy Spirit work in us to even want to do better. If there's a desire in you at all to want to do something more or better or to change a rotten behavior, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in you. And so acknowledge that and ask for more help. Pray for more help that you would even want to change, that you would even want to do something different than what you're doing. So we pray that we would be filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit so that we can work in a way that would please God. And so the question then is, well, what pleases God? And Paul's going to answer that for us as we keep going. So look at verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in in vain or labor in vain. God wants us to look different than the rest of the world. The world acts entitled, and grumbles whenever it doesn't get its way. 
And that is not how God's people are supposed to be. I had us read that weird numbers passage about the snakes for one simple reason. To show you that God doesn't like grumbling. Why? Why is complaining and grumbling such a big deal to God? It really boils down to to trust and faith, doesn't it? Because anytime you complain about something in your life, anytime you grumble, you are essentially telling God that he's not doing a very good job. You are telling God, you're not doing it right. It should look like this. God, you need to do something better in my life. That's what complaining is. I don't like the situation I'm I'm in. It must be God's fault. God, if you could do more, things would be better. Right? That's what complaining boils down to. Do you trust the situation that you're in, that God knows what he's doing or, or he doesn't? That's, that's complaining. C.S. Lewis once said, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. Hell begins with grumbling. And he'll go on to say, basically, hell is going to be of your own creation, of your own grumbling, and not getting what you want. That's what hell's going to look like. So again, at the heart of grumbling, at the heart of complaining is the question, do you trust God? And and when I say that and think that, it's a sobering thing for me. Because I'm unhappy and and complain all the time, way too much. I'm telling God, you're not really doing a good enough job in my life. You need to fix some stuff. Several years ago, I encountered uh, a group of AIDS orphans in Kenya, meaning their parents had died of AIDS, and, and many of these kids already, you know, ha- had it as well because of their parents, or had just lost their parents. And so it's an orphanage of kids um, who, who, were, who were dealing with just the worst scenario situation you can imagine. Guess what the name of their orphanage was? It was the Shining Stars Orphanage. And their name struck me to the core because I knew exactly where it had come from. It had come from this passage. The founder of the orphanage had named it the Shining Star Orphanage out of Philippians chapter 2. She made it her mission to teach these children not to grumble and complain. Ever. That was what they were about. And they would talk about this passage every single day. No matter what happens in, in life. And believe me, they had every right to complain as AIDS orphans. They have every right to complain that their life wasn't fair. They had every right to, to grumble that things weren't going the way it should for them. But they made it their point that we were not going to complain. We were not going to live our lives in grumbling. But instead, we're going to shine. We're going to shine in the dark world by not grumbling or complaining, but being obedient to God. That's what we want to look like. We want to be shining stars in a dark place. This passage says that people will know who God is by our love and our faith in a crooked and broken world, in a crooked and broken generation. So I have to ask myself, we have to ask ourselves, are we living as shining stars in the, in, in the world around us, in, in the places you are, in your school, in your job, in your neighborhood, with your friends, with your family. Are you a shining star? Or are you contributing to the darkness as well? And scholars would say th- this passage has something to do with, you know, individual Christians, but more than that, 
Paul is talking to the church. This is, this is a collective, we already talked about the plural. He's talking to a group kind of thing. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is Kishwaukee Church shining in a dark world? Are people coming to know Jesus, people having hope because who, of who we are and what we do and how we share that hope with the world? That's our question, right? I, I want to close with a story about one of uh, Christianity's finest moments. During the early years of the church, uh, when, when Rome was still persecuting Christians, uh, there, was, there was, on top of the persecution, a terrible plague. It was one of the worst plagues that we have in human history. Uh, some numbers suggest that 40% of the Roman world died during this time. 40% of the population died. But interestingly, Christianity grew during that time of persecution and, uh, and plague. Uh, e- even though it was illegal, even though it was persecuted. And, and many historians have asked the question, why? How did, how did that happen? How did Christianity take a foothold and become the, you know, this, this, this important thing in, in the world during this time? We have some clues. Uh, I want you to, uh, to, to hear this quote. Uh, from one of the, the leaders of the church during that time. I put it up here so, so you can see it as well. It's from a, from a guy named Dionysus the Great. He says this, Most of our brother Christians showed unabounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Okay, so, so that was the picture of the Christians during this plague. What were they doing? They said, you're sick. Nobody's taking care of you. I will help you. I will go and take care of this person. Well, what was happening to them? They were getting sick. And sometimes they were healing, helping heal the person, and then they would end up dying from the very same thing they were helping the other person from. And he says, that, you can call that martyrdom because of what they were doing. And so, how is the rest of the world behaving and responding? Here's another quote. The heathen, meaning non-Christians, behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. So people who didn't know the love of Jesus, their neighbor, their friend, or their family member, got it, throw them in the, throw them in the street. Leave them to die alone. Don't touch them. Stay away from them. And Christians said, we will do the very opposite thing. We will show them love, even if it means our lives. This is an, an incredible, incredible time. What's amazing uh, is that it was, it, it was noticed by others. Uh, we have a, a letter from uh, the Roman emperor Julian 
around this same time, and, and he was not a fan of Christianity, but he admitted that they were growing because of their behavior, because of their love. It's interesting because Julian launches a campaign of all the Roman, you know, you would call them pagan religions, and says, hey, you, you need to just copy what the, those Christians are doing because it, whatever they're doing is working. He said, he said, look, the Christians showed benevolence towards strangers and care for the, the graves of the dead. I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, meaning the pagan, like Roman god priests, it says the impious Galileans, which are Christians, uh, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans supported not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. This is the emperor acknowledging, hey, we, we're treating people really bad, and the Christians are treating people well, and, and maybe we should be more like them. Isn't that interesting? If you're like me, maybe you're wondering if you would have had the courage to do the same thing. If I had been a Christian living in those times, would I have done the same thing? What about today? You know, it's interesting as I think about the, you know, the, the thousands of Christians who we've never heard of who did amazing sacrificial things. And, and maybe they are forgotten to history, but, but they're remembered by their Savior. And, and a pretty good argument comes, you know, that, that their lives, their sacrifices were the, the seeds of the church. Their sacrifices were the seeds of the churches that helped spread Christ to the nations. And if you want to take that further, maybe you and I can say that we're partly here because of these men and women who will never know. We don't know their names. But their love helped help others know Christ, who helped others know Christ, who then take it further into Europe, who then take it on and on and on to the new world, and, and on and on it goes, people who are willing to love others more than themselves to show the love of Christ. And, and the Christians didn't do it so that the church would grow. They just wanted to glorify Jesus in their lives. They did it because they were convinced that that that's what Jesus would have wanted them to do. And, and growth only came when people saw that they shined like stars in a corrupt world. You and I still live in a corrupt world. And, and, and Paul, I think, would say the same things to us as he did to his friends at Philippi. God has secured your salvation. It's from him. It's a gift. He gave it to you. Now go do something with it. Get to work. Get to work in this corrupt world. Let the world see your faith. And no, you can't do it on your own. That's impossible. But through the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit, you will lose your selfishness and you will begin to see others as more important than yourselves. Grumbling and complaining becomes a thing of the past. The world will want what you have, the joy of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, if I'm... If I'm honest, I love myself more than anything else. And too often I want to serve myself. I want to do what I want. I don't want to make myself inconvenienced. I sure don't want to put my life at risk for the sake of others. That is what is in the human heart as a sinner. God, will you change us? Will you change me? 
Will you empower us through your Holy Spirit to recognize that our life is completed in Christ? We have all we could ever need. We all have all we ever hoped for. So we can give our lives away. Because that's what Christ did. Father, help us not to complain and grumble and think that we know better than you about the way our lives should go. We do suffer in this world, but you tell us that we will be victorious with you one day. Just as you suffered and and were persecuted, you are now victorious. We will have the same. God, so help us have a bigger perspective than our lives here and today, but that there's so much more. Thank you, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.